Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I'm joined by Jackie Ching. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm so excited. I've said that like three times already in pre-talk, <laughs> but um, Jackie, who are you? Um, I am the editor-in-chief of The Wirecutter and The Sweet Home. So... These are like two of my favorite websites um, because I don't have to think about buying things anymore. I'm just like, what USB battery pack should I buy? And I'm like, I'll go to the wire cutter and like, I don't your, your writers and researchers put so much work into writing like these long, complicated, involved articles about the process and whatever. And I'm like, I'm buying the recommendation. <laughs> I typically don't even read the article, although I appreciate everything there. Yeah, um, you know, we we pride ourselves in saving people, um, you know, stress and time uh, and hopefully money, too, in in doing the research to buy stuff. Um, You know, it's I think people are people, ourselves included, um, have are coming to realize that it's a real pain to have to shop online these days um, and feel like you have to read up on a million reviews or find out all the details. And, you know, it's I think it's hard because you do need to find out some details but you probably don't need to learn every single thing there is to learn. But it's really hard for regular people to sort of know where that line is. And also you can get sucked into rabbit holes on Amazon or wherever else reading millions of reviews. And it can be really uh, stressful and and hard to make a decision. So we, we try to do that all for you um, and, and do the testing and hopefully make some clear and useful recommendations so that, as you said, that you don't have to, you don't even have to read if you don't want to. Uh, you could just click through if you want. Um, but of course, we we love it when people read. So yeah, and I love that I can if I have a question. Well, why did they pick? And I've done that with important things like um, should I use like AeroPress or pour over for coffee? <laughs> and I read like <laughs> why why is this one you know doodad recommended over this other doodad? And um, you know, but for <laughs> for things like battery packs, I'm just like I trust them. I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I greatly appreciate that you do all of that. Awesome. Uh, I'm glad that you like it. I hope other people like it too. You know, um, I, I certainly buy everything that we recommend too. And not just because I'm the editor, like I, I trust our recommendations and you know, I need to save time, money, time and money as well. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess I didn't, because I'm so familiar with, with both sites, I didn't ask you to explain what they are. So if, um, I think we gave some context, but could you sum up what the wire cutter and sweet sure, do? Sure, sure. Uh, so we publish product reviews, but we publish them on a in a sort of category basis. Um, so instead of like individual, say, for example, iPhone reviews or MacBook reviews or, you know, Microsoft Surface reviews, instead, we're addressing a whole category at once and just saying, what is the best you know, USB battery pack or the best laptop for uh, people on a budget or like the best on Sweet Home, for example, the best space heater for small rooms, uh, the best space heater for big rooms. And so um, we try to really reduce that to its base sort of uh, context, the the product, and just sort of look at the category and just say, okay, for an, a regular person, you and me, your your parents, your friends, what would you tell your your friends to get if you had access to a bunch of researchers and some testers, and we could do all this? You know, what are the what's like the top one or two things we would tell someone, and um, you know, that's what we do. So we we 
kind of try to tell you what is the best thing to get for most people. Uh, usually we do have a couple other recommendations if you have special needs that are outside sort of the norm, I guess you could say. Uh, we usually try to find an upgrade pick if you're really like dying to get like the truly the best thing on earth. Um, you know, it might cost a little bit more, but we like something that's a little bit better usually. And then we'll also often offer like a budget pick, something for people who are trying to save money or, you know, specific use cases. It depends on what it is, really. So you are editor in chief. And my thoughts of editor in chief go back to when I was one in the high school newspaper or <laughs> because I've just uh, I, I've, I've watched all of Downton Abbey. I think of like a person behind a desk with a cigarette um, like pouring over newspapers. So what does an editor in chief look like um, for, well, for you, for two sites um, for which, well, I'll let you explain for which you're responsible for content. And well, um, I'm sitting at a desk with a cigarette pouring over websites. Ah, just, I figured, I figured <laughs> no cigarette. Um, but yes, uh, so it is, you know, it is very weird and different, especially at the wire cutter because we, um, you know, we've, we function in a different way than a lot of publications. We don't do news. Um, and we also, I mean, we're kind of magazine like, but we're also not really on a schedule like a magazine is. So we, we sort of have our own weird systems. Um, for me, I really deal with sort of the top level sort of direction of the sites. So I help to define what editorial direction we are going in. Um, you know, generally that means which main product cat categories we're sort of pursuing or filling out um, or what new stuff we want to get into. And I work with a lot of our, I work with, um, we have an executive editor on both sites and then we have a set of senior editors on both sites. So I work a lot with those people to sort of help sort of drive that direction of coverage um, and set those standards. And then those editors then go and work with other editors to, you know, make these assignments, find the right writers, find the right experts, um, and actually get get the pieces done. And so um, for me, I actually, I'm very lucky that I don't necessarily have to go through and edit every single piece like I used to um, mm -hmm. a, a couple years ago when I came on board. Uh, but I do, you know, of course, I am an editor, so I love to go in there whenever I can. And my favorite thing is to demand to see early versions of the drafts so I can see what the picks are. And then uh, I, I usually have to have to spoiler alert everyone else as I go around to like buy it and then tell everyone how much I love it. <laughs> so I don't know. It's a it's a really interesting job. I, I do like working with a lot of people, um, but I've also learned through this job that I can't really work with um, I can't work with every single writer one on one mm. like I, you know, sometimes like to do, but um, it's OK. You know, I think I have a lot of great editors who do, do those things. So the Wirecutter and the Sweet Home have been around for, I don't know, like three-ish years now? Yeah. Um, Wirecutter actually has been around for about four years. And Sweet Home, I want to say like two years. Okay. So it's it's semi-recent. So in that time, the Sweet Home and the Wirecutter have both grown quite a bit. And since you've come on board, they've grown quite a bit. And um, I imagine... Like, I don't know, I've I've been in companies dealing with growth and trying to figure out how to scale growth and figuring out who to delegate to and when. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if those are kinds of some of the things that you've been facing and like, how do you deal with that? How do you experiment with that and figure out what works for you? 
Yeah, that is, you know, I would say that that has definitely been a challenge for me um, and some of the people below me even. Um, you know, this is a company that, as you pointed out, is growing very quickly. Um, you know, even just in the last, uh, I've been here for two years and some change, and uh, we we have, like, I can't even imagine it. We've probably quadrupled the size of our staff. So something that... It was very hard for me, actually, to learn how to delegate the right way and also, you know, be able to do that while also not micromanaging. Um, I think that when you start handing tasks or projects off to other people, it's actually almost too easy to fall into micromanaging because you as the manager or editor or, you know, whatever your position is, you often feel like you have a really great idea of how it's supposed to go. You've been doing it for forever and you know exactly how you would do it. And you feel like you can tell someone else exactly how to do it. And, you know, the reality of the situation is that you know, other people have um, other ideas. <laughs> they they sometimes have better ideas. Uh, and you I think it's really hard to find that line. But when you do find that line, it's really good. Um, for me, it has been really delightful to find out that the people that I am working with, that I'm delegating stuff to right below me, um, are very creative people. They're very ambitious people. They have a lot of good ideas and they often think of things that I would not even think of. And so for me, that is very helpful. And um, I think it just goes to show that I, uh, hopefully I hired the right people. <laughs> well, and it's so... I <laughs> You know, when you when you have ownership of a thing, I'm experiencing this right now, when you have ownership of a thing, whatever that is, and you love it and you've nurtured it, and then you like you you try to let go but are still involved kind of on, on the fringes, mm -hmm. and that's like a really hard emotional battle. At least it is for me. Like I'm like, but 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 I did this was mine. This was yeah. mine and what are you doing? And no, I don't like that. And then, oh, it's better. Why didn't I think to do it that way? <laughs> <And> <laughs> that is very true. I think that, um, you know, I went through this, too, with uh, with Brian Lamb, who is the founder of Wirecutter. You know, it's it's his baby. Right. He started the site. Um, he's he's still around. Obviously, he's he's our CEO now. But for him, too, it was hard for him to sort of really hand off the reins um, when it came to like running editorial. And he is still involved with that. Um, you know, I think it's been a process for him. And it's also been a process for me. Uh, it's in a weird way. We're kind of all going through it together, <laughs> like handing off responsibilities and mm -hmm. and seeing how other people handle it. Um, but it's it's good. It's a good learning experience. Well, and I think that it gives you a chance to learn a lot about yourself. I don't know if like I'm all about that, you know, learning about me and how I can be better and what I'm not so good at. And I think those are excellent opportunities for personal growth. Yeah, it's it's been good for me. I think I've really learned a lot more about how to communicate. Um, I'm certainly not perfect at all in this area, but I think um, communicating at the right level with people and, you know, simultaneously being very direct, but also sort of leaving the door open for their own creativity. I think it's been good. So you went from being editor at ours to editor in chief for these two sites. What was that transition like for you? And like, what are the differences between the two? Um, well, I, I think that there are a lot of differences, uh, but also a lot of similarities. I think so when I was at ours, um, I 
I also was brought in at a very early stage at ours, actually. So for me, there's a lot of sim- similarities with Wirecutter in that I think the companies are in a very similar, not maybe not exactly the same, but similar stage um, when I joined. And so in that sense, um, it was it was a lot about at ours and at Wirecutter in the beginning for me, it was a lot about just sort of bootstrapping and just doing a lot of everything Um, at ours. You know, once we grew and I sort of did settle into a more specific role um, by the time I left, I was senior Apple editor. It was, you know, it's, it's a news based site, news and reviews, but uh, we, you know, the flow there is different. I did have um, some writers that I worked with and I assigned out stories to. I also wrote myself. So that was one thing. I I simultaneously was writing and also editing other people and sort of controlling the editorial direction of my section. Um, And at Wirecutter, I am sort of doing some of those things, but in a way, it's just at a bigger scale. I, I sort of do the editorial direction, you know, for both sites, kind of from the very, very top. And I'm not so much making specific um, assignments now, but rather I sort of, you know, I would decide which sections we want to get into or which areas we want to expand more. And then I sort of let the editors work out which specific pieces they want to assign. Um, so I, I think it's similar. But again, you know, at Wirecutter, we don't do news. So there's the, the news cycle is not the same. Like it's not a same daily cycle as it is when you're normally covering sort of everyday events. Um, I think that uh, you know, for me also, I don't work directly with writers. I think I said that before. It's it's it wasn't such a hard transition for me, but it I think in the in retrospect, in the bigger picture, I have realized that um, it's not that I miss writing per se, but I, I recognize more like uh, the value of what I was doing before, too, because um, now that I don't write, I sort of kind of know I'm like, oh, well, my name's not really out there as much as it used to be. But I also like have a lot more control over how things go with the site in general as I used to. So um, it's kind of a give and take thing. But I was also ready for it at the time. I was going to ask if you missed the writing piece at all. <laughs> I I have to admit um in that particular role, I think I was getting worn out on writing what I was writing. Uh, it was just becoming, you know, uh, this is not at all saying anything bad about people who write news or even people who are, you know, at ours doing that. Um, certainly they all do great work. Uh, for me, I just, you know, it, it almost became like Groundhog Day, especially doing Apple stuff. Like I could map out the whole year and the cadence of the year um, in terms of what to expect when, you know, which events you can expect when, which products. And it was always the same. And, you know, once you do that for like eight or nine years, it's really just it, it just starts being always the same. Mm-hmm. And so in that respect, I was tired of it. But I do miss writing as as a more general thing. Um, I, I have realized that that is something that I really enjoyed um, as a creative outlet. So I am I am sort of like nursing this fantasy of writing more for myself or for, you know, anyone who will take my writing. But um, I also know that I have a lot to do and I tend to sort of schedule out my time a lot. So I, I fear that I will never find the time for it. I understand that feeling. I'm, I'm like, I'm a writer, but I don't write. Does that yeah you know? it's it makes me i'm a little nervous because i 
kind of taught myself to write and I consider myself to be pretty good. Um, but I'm worried that I'm not practicing enough. Like, you mm -hmm. know, doing news forces you to practice. You write, you know, something every day of your life, basically. Um, and now I'm not doing that. So I, that's the one worry. I'm like, I'm not I'm getting out of practice. I need to, you know, make sure to write something so that I can s still do that so I can sit down and churn out something great. It amazes me that, I mean, I do different types of writing um, and I don't think that everybody can do that, but I seem to be able to do like I can do a blog post and I can do release notes and I can do like my own creative writing thing over here, but I can't do that all at once. Um, yeah. And that's, it's sad. <laughs> yeah. And for me too, I I've realized, especially with this job, it's, it's definitely a different side of my brain that is being mm -hmm. utilized from writing. I think being editor in chief is a lot like being kind of, I mean, it is being a manager in some ways. It's, it's kind of being a high level manager. Uh, and it really exercises a certain part of my brain, but then writing is like a totally different thing, you know, like it's, it really is the creative side. And I think I didn't really realize that before and I realize it now. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, I'll eventually get back to writing <laughs> someday. I believe you. I believe in <laughs> you, whatever you want to do. Um, I was going to ask, so we're recording this on March 21st, um, and there was an Apple event today and uh, yes, you were was. talking about the cadence of your years while you were at ours. Um, so what is it like not going to an Apple event? Because I know you didn't go this year or to this one. Oh man. So I haven't gone to a few now. Um, it's kind of funny that I can say like, I haven't gone to a few and I've otherwise <laughs> gone to like probably hundreds. Uh, but, um, you know, I, at first it was very, I felt very conflicted. Um, when you spend so much of your life as I did sort of being that person that was, you know, covering Apple stuff and the Apple editor and, uh, I had a very authoritative voice. It was hard for me to let go of it, uh, cause it's so integrated with, your identity, or at least it was for me. Um, but at the same time, I was also incredibly, incredibly relieved. I, like I said, I was kind of getting tired of it. It, it was just wearing me out. And so in a lot of ways, I was very, very happy to be able to send other people and not, not really have to go. Um, so it was bittersweet. You know, I think that I still sort of like going in, in some ways. Um, and occasionally I still get invited. They don't invite me to every single thing because they do have limited space. And I would rather send, um, you know, a writer or editor who's going to get more out of it than me. But uh, if they did have space, you know, I, I would go. But certainly it's it's also different because I don't have to do the the write-ups and stuff. Um, even when I do go, you know, I get to be that person who's offering the, the critique and the analysis and, um, it's, it's a different position. So in that sense, it's, it's easier to, I don't have to lie blog. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was, I was thinking, um, so we were introduced by Jason Snell, who's a mutual friend. And, um, I, I was thinking about him today and like, what a chaotic day this is for him because he's, you know, got to go to the Apple events and he's live tweeting it and taking notes. And then he'll, mm -hmm. you know, go to a coffee shop or home or like whatever that is for him. And he'll like frantically write at least a blog post about this event. And I'm just like, I am so glad I don't have to do that kind of, oh, man. that kind of pressured writing. I used to go out to the, well, so I used to sit on the floor in the briefing room. They have a briefing room right after the event. So you can like touch stuff. Mm -hmm. I would sit on the floor and try and write it until they kicked me out. And then I would just sit outside on the sidewalk or something until they kicked me out. Oh gosh. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's tough. It's weird, but everyone's doing it too. So, so 
you were um, in tech. I mean, you still are, but you were uh-huh. a journalist in tech and you are a woman of color in tech. How do you feel things have changed like in the last five years? Oh, man, five years. That's hard to say, actually. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I was also a programmer before I became a writer. I actually <laughs> did. I have that knowledge in the back of my head. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, um, so from my perspective with that, actually, I have a lot of I have a lot of opinions there. But, um, you know, I think that I think overall in in a lot of weird ways, it has both gotten better and worse. <laughs> uh, I think that. It's better in the sense of there are more women than ever um, in all areas of tech, uh, whether that is, you know, female programmers, designers, uh, that kind of stuff, or even, you know, writers and editors and in the tech press. There's more of us than ever. So in that sense, it's very good. Also, it's very good that people are talking about issues much more than probably ever. Um, and again, you know, in, in some ways that probably goes hand in hand with more women being around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of that is really good. I think that even if the conversations we are having are very painful and challenging and perhaps divisive, uh, all that is kind of it's par for the course for this kind of, you know, situation that I think that we are in with with women sort of fighting for to be seen equally, to be treated equally, uh, to be paid equally. But, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's also gotten worse because, well, quote unquote worse. It depends on how you see that. But um, from my perspective, I think that the whatever you want to describe the other side as the the hostile side to this. And I don't necessarily see you know, not to not all men this, but I will legitimately say, I, you know, not all men are on the hostile side, right. but whatever we want to call the hostile side, I think the hostile side has gotten more hostile mm-hmm. uh, than when I was, than even when I was a programmer. And that was like, you know, more than 10 years ago. That was like 12 years ago. Um, I, I left that job. I left that career path um, because I did not like the environment and it made me feel really empty inside for something that I otherwise loved to do, um, which was program and solve problems through programming. But, um, you know, it's so weird because I, I talk to a lot of people now and I still hear a lot of, a lot of the horrible stories, except somehow now they're more amplified and they happen more often. Um, And that's really upsetting to, even hear from other people, uh, even though I don't necessarily have to deal with those things as directly. Um, for myself in the tech press, I think it has been very challenging as well, although in different ways. Um, I I now, not so much now, but at ours when my byline was out there more, I certainly got attacked a lot. And I got attacked uh, in very gendered ways, um, also racist ways. Um, I There were several times in which commenters would say things like, you know, I was hired as the affirmative action hire. Uh, and, you know, I got a, I got stalked a lot. Um, I actually, there was a point in, at which, um, you know, right at the height of my <laughs> writing for ours, um, where I had a couple people basically sneak into a party in my apartment, um, internet people who kind of figured out this is in the very early days of Twitter when like everyone was maybe not early days, mid days where everyone was geotagging everything. So they just kind of figured out who like where where I was and they came into my building and figured out where the party was and managed to make their way in because 
when it's a party and random people are answering the door. They don't always know who's who that is. And, uh, you know, I've had things like that happen. And these are those are all terrifying, too. You know, yeah. um, I think I'm a little more protected than I was when I was a programmer. But at the same time, I'm, I'm not. You know, uh, you can look up you can look up a lot of info about people nowadays. And, uh, you know, I think tech press is, has its own issues. Sorry for blabbing. I, I'm sure that I kind of went on and on on that. No, one. no. I think it, it. Well, I think that it um, it underscores. So, at the Apple event today, um, like I do this every Apple event. I do a diversity count, and I do um, women and people of color, and that's very you know binary. It doesn't take mm-hmm. into account you know transgender people, non-binary. I, like I totally understand that it's not a perfect thing, and it's kind of relying on what I can see or what I know about, you know, Apple employees based on executive bios and that kind of thing. But, um, but just kind of like a loose, you know, thing. And I tweet about it every Apple event. I think I started doing this like a year and a half ago, every Apple event I watch live and I tweet diversity numbers of people, presenters, you know, Mm -hmm. Apple does great with their videos. I mean, they really do. I, I appreciate them, but their presenters are still mostly white men. And, inevitably people show up in my mentions guys white guys show up in my mentions and they're like it doesn't matter why are you tweeting about this but it does matter women and people of color are normal <laughs> like yeah you know i of course i you know i'm a long long time apple user i obviously i covered them for a long time i'm a personal you know whatever i like their stuff but it is you know it is actually kind of it's both not surprising and surprising in a lot of ways that this is something that they are still struggling with. Um, you know, a lot of tech companies are struggling with this, so it's not mm-hmm. just Apple. But at the same time, Apple is typically a leader in a lot of areas. And it is in the reason I say it's surprising is that you would think by now they would have taken this more seriously and been more aggressive about it. But they have not, uh, which to, to me, just tells me that it's just not a priority mm-hmm. because Apple has the ability to do almost literally anything. And if they are not prioritizing it, you know, that's that's how, you know, they're not prioritizing it because it's not happening. Yeah. And like today's event was like, look at all of the impossible challenges we solved for environmental, blah, blah, blah. Like, look at these yaks happy in their field. And I will link to that video. And I'm like, good for those yaks. But yeah, you know, and I'm I, genuinely I think it's great that they are solving environmental problems or at least trying to contribute less to environmental problems. But um, but I'm like, this is diversity at Apple is still a problem. They recently rejected the board recently rejected a proposal to to like actively diversify the board and Mm. I'm just like yeah that's that's fabulous um and I don't know like you look look at their stats and I think we're due for their second well their third year of reporting their diversity stats um this summer and I'm not optimistic because last year it wasn't an improvement over the year before yeah, I'll have to admit, I will be very surprised if there is a visible improvement. And if there is, like, I will be very happy. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, holding my breath on it. Yeah. You know, yeah. they have so much money. They could do a lot of things. <laughs> they could yeah. do a lot of things. It, it just goes to show that, um, you know, lip service is not enough. It's not enough to say that you are into supporting diversity and 
and unless you you are taking actions to support it. And I say this too, as you know, at Wirecutter, of course, we try to pride ourselves in the fact that we do have maybe a slightly more diverse staff and more diverse group of people running the company than many other companies, but we are not perfect. And we recognize that very plainly. Like we know uh, the areas in which we need to improve, at least internally. Um, And I, you know, you would hope that you would hope that a company like Apple would take that equally as seriously, but it doesn't seem like they are. So it just goes to show that a lot of companies just, you know, they feel like sit, talking the talk is enough and mm-hmm. it's just not. You just have to really make some real efforts um, because otherwise, you know, if you're not showing showing us the results of all this, then it's just talk. Yep. The funniest thing, um, and I've told this story to, to other guests on the show, so, you know, other listeners may know it, but um, Intel did $300 million. I think it was a year and a half ago now. They were like, we're $300 million over a certain number of years. We're, we're dedicating to diversity initiatives. And um, last summer, it was like last August or something, they were like, so here's our year one report. And turns out this is kind of hard. <laughs> Yeah, they were like, we were surprised because it's really hard to to find people. And I'm like, yeah, it takes work, but it's work that needs to be done. It just needs to be done. Yeah. And, you know, something that a lot of women uh, I I find a lot of women programmers tweet sentiments like this, but I think it's very true in general um, is which is that if if there are not, if you blame the pipeline and, and there are not enough women or minorities or whatever applying through your pipeline, I mean, that's not exactly, it's not exactly something you can just blame on the pipeline and then leave it that way. It's that way for a reason. And uh, for maybe not every single company, but for many companies, part of the reason the pipeline is like that is because those people know that they may not actually want to work there. They may realize that it's in fact dominated by a bunch of white dudes and that's not where they want to be. And that may seem harsh, but the reality is, you know, women and minorities and and people talk too, and mm-hmm. they compare notes sometimes when certain people have had bad experiences. And so, you know, you have to really look at what is really happening and you can't just say, oh, no women are applying. Um, you have to go out and find them. And figure out why. Yeah. Because that, that back channel exists. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. I, and I find too that... Um, I don't know. It's hard because you're like, okay, here's here's this cultural thing that needs to change so that we can start shifting things and increasing, you know, diversity. And diversity is good for everybody, right? It's you have different ways of looking at problems and solving problems, and and you learn about different problems to solve. And how cool is that from like, you know, programming? I like to solve problems standpoint, but. But I have often said, you know, to various people, like, this is a problem that needs to be solved. And they're just like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Yeah. That's like, okay. Yeah. I, you know, I I just think that people need to take it much more seriously than they are. Um, But like I said, you know, it's things don't always happen overnight. And I do think that the fact that people are talking about it is a good step. It's just not the end result. You know, um, and hopefully they realize that soon as well. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're talking about helping women and people of color in technical spaces, also think about what you're doing to help them, because just talking about it doesn't actually, you know, change starts with talking, but it actually happens with action. So I guess that's my 
call to people listening to this show. Like, what are you doing to help? Yeah. And you can even tweet at me and tell me what you're doing to help. I'm interested. So I follow you on Twitter and it, it occurred to me today how, how creepy that phrase is. I follow you on Twitter because <laughs> um, I was going to email, you know, emailing confirmations. I, I follow you on Twitter and I noticed blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, God, that's just no, that doesn't sound good. Um, but one thing that I've noticed is that you travel a lot. Oh, uh, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Compared to me, you travel a lot. Um so is is traveling like a hobby for you or is it a necessity? Um, I guess I would say both. Uh, I do travel for work a decent amount, um, mostly because so at the Wirecutter, we are all remote um, as a company. We have offices, though, in New York and L.A. And that is especially in New York is where we have a lot of people. It's in L.A. We have a decent number of people, too. So for me, um, I go to both of those places a lot for work because that's where we, we've realized, even though we're all remote, we we know the benefits of of sitting down in a room together. So we try to get together and have meetings and um, get a lot done when we can in person and then all go back to our little caves <laughs> to work for another couple months until we see each other again. Um, but then also, yeah, I do travel for fun. Um, my my husband, Clint, and I uh, just, you know, we don't have kids. Uh, we do have cats. But um you know, it's a it's a thing that we like. Um, I personally just have always it's it's both a learning thing and also just, you know, relaxation. I tend to I'm not really into the staycation as much as a lot of people are. So I like to get out of my element, even if it is um, super budget. You know, I don't mind going on a major budget and like camping somewhere and it, the whole thing costing me twelve dollars. Um, I just need to get out of my my element. <laughs> See, and I'm, I was thinking today that I haven't had time at home in like time at home when I'm not working in years, you know, because when I take time off work, I'm going to, you know, to WWDC or to, you know, this conference or, you know, uh, something for work or or whatever. And so I'm like, I really want a week where I'm not working and I'm just sitting in my house doing nothing. (laughs) No, admittedly, I did just stay home for three days because of my wisdom teeth. And that was kind of fun, but um, I don't know if I could do it for longer than three days. I I really need to get out. (laughs) (laughs) Topped out at three. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm an introvert. So, Um, (laughs) so have you been to any cool places? I imagine. Um, I, yeah, I, I see almost everywhere as a cool place. Um, I just went to India a couple months ago for, uh, it was for my friend's sister's wedding. And so, um, it was, you know, it's kind of one of those things where India, of course, was on my list as a cool place to go, but I will admit it was a little, it, it was, and still is, um, a little intimidating as a vacation destination, um, you know, for someone who's never been there and, you know, my husband Clint has never been there. So it was going to be one of those things where we were like, I don't know if we can go to India and how will be, how will we be able to handle it? But then when our friend was like, oh, we're having this huge Indian wedding, why don't you come? We were like, yeah, sounds like a great opportunity because, uh, we'll have, you know, some activities to do that we already know about, which is wedding stuff. You know, we'll know people there because our friend was going to be there, plus um, some mutual friends of ours. And it, it seemed less intimidating that way. So we were like, let's do it. And it was really fun. Um, I had an awesome time. Yeah, I desperately want to go to even just um, 
France, any non non English is the primary language country, even mm-hmm. though I know English is spoken in a lot of places. Like I get really nervous about that. And I know so many people who just like go out and do it. And I, I just can't. <laughs> Yeah, and you should go out and do it. But I, I definitely can relate to that. Um, you know, I also just went. To, I also just went to Paris uh, last oh. year, and that was really, really fun too. It was. It was um, not to put a damper on this conversation, but it was actually just like two weeks before the terrorist attacks. Oh, so, yeah. in that sense, it was good. I guess that we had gone because I probably would meet maybe be a little more nervous now. But at the same time, you know, it was it was awesome. But. You know, in most countries, people speak English, even in India, like people spoke English almost everywhere. It was not hard to find English speakers. So in that sense, I think you should totally go for wherever you want to go. Yeah. Okay. well, I've got India on the list. One of my best friends is actually um, a first generation U.S. citizen. So he's like, we need to go to India. And I'm like, "Okay." Oh, have fun. You should go, especially if you're going with a friend. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do it eventually. I'm super excited. <laughs> but, um, well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Jackie. How can people find you online? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at ejackie. It is spelled E-J-A-C-Q-U-I. Um, or you can email me at jackie at thewirecutter.com. And you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to relay.fm slash LTOE and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it'd be great if you'd leave a review or star rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.